It's Monday, June 5th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And a little later in the spiel, which I always tell you about, I will be talking about CNN, the town hall, and Donald Trump. And I'll do a little experiment because I'll shift the dependent variables. So we have CNN, we have town hall, and we have a huge conflagration that could cost the head of CNN his job. What if you took out CNN? What if Donald Trump did a town hall somewhere else? He did on Fox. No one cared. Okay, what if you took out the Donald Trump? What if CNN did a town hall with another Democratic candidate? They did. Nikki Haley last night. Did you know? No, you didn't. This is my point. CNN plus town hall equals meltdown. Now, in the spiel, I will not be discussing, not even mentioning an important figure in Republican politics. Donald Trump will mention him once. His name is Ron DeSantis. Donald Trump will mispronounce his name. You'll hear that in the spiel. But I wanted to talk about Ron DeSantis. I wanted to talk about one key aspect of Ron DeSantis. The difference between what Ron DeSantis is promising and what Donald Trump is promising. And I think this gets to their huge divergence and what will probably influence who gets the nomination. So Donald Trump's promise is the world. Donald Trump promises his voters the world. He promises them everything. Whatever they hoped for, a return to the time when America was great, whenever they define it, greatness, however they define it, he will give them that. That is his promise. He will give them a wall. Mexico will pay for it. That is his promise. He will engage in a tariff wars. They are easy to win. He will win them. That is his promise. Those are his old promises. He's making new promises, a turnaround faster than you can imagine. He promises everything. He promises the world. He has always done this as a businessman, as a showman, as a politician, as a president, now as a candidate, once again, Donald Trump promises the world. Ron DeSantis promises Florida. Wherever you are, American, I can give you Florida. Minus the weather. That I can't bring. That's meteorological. Although if the policies are bad enough, you could argue he could affect meteorology. But Ron DeSantis is saying to you, miffed Minnesotan, to you, disheartened man in Dubuque, Look at your circumstance, look at your state, look at your country, look at the state of your country, and substitute in Florida. What I did in Florida, I'm going to bring that everywhere. I'm going to bring the war on wokeness. I'm going to bring tangling with big corporations who are very important to the state. But still, I'm going to bring vaccine hesitancy and the questioning of public health officials. That is his promise to America. He's promising them Florida without the weather. I think that could be key. Florida versus the world, the two promises of the two main candidates. I'm not saying that will be determinative of who wins. I do think it'll play a big role in the minds of the voter. On the show today, as I said, that spiel about Donald Trump, CNN, and what to make of the fact that they gave him a platform, a bad platform, it could cost the CEO his job. But first, Lisa Belkin is the author of Genealogy of Murder, Four Generations, Three Families, One Fateful Night. She talks about how three men, a doctor, a convict, and a cop, are all connected in a 1960s murder in Stanford, Connecticut. She goes back years. She expands her scope out. It is a fascinating book and a fascinating conversation. I hope you listen to Lisa Belkin up next.
The new book by Lisa Belkin, Genealogy of a Murder, Four Generations, Three Families, One Fateful Night, does what it needs to do to get you hooked. It puts murder right there on the cover and frames it as the story of a murder, which we're all interested in. Just look at the podcast charts. However, it's a very different book than almost every other murder book. It's not a whodunit. It's not a crime book. Genealogy and generations play the most important role. And as you read the book, you figure this out when you're about 150 pages in and you tell yourself, I think I may be still 20 years from the murder. It's a good book. It might even be a great book. I'm not exactly sure if readers will cotton to it if they just see murder on the cover, but they should. Lisa Belkin is an acclaimed and accomplished reporter and author, and she joins me on The Gist. Thanks for coming on, Lisa. You, you've you got the gist. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what you were trying to do with the book. Uh, and like the book itself, I want to circle back to some basic facts, but I was struck by how genealogy of a murder echoes anatomy of a murder. And that's obviously intentional. And in the movie and thinking about anatomy of the murder, a murder is the story of how a body became a body. And usually what we do is trace it back to the motivations of the murderer. But you're making a very different point here. What sparked in your head where you said, this is the way to tell this story? So it all started with duck eggs. Um, My mom had recently remarried and I was off visiting her and her relatively new husband and and they were being very domestic and quite sweet actually at this new chapter in their lives. So we were sitting and having breakfast. We were having poached duck eggs. And my stepfather, who was a relatively a relative stranger to me, had just read another book of mine in order to get to know me. And he sort of mentioned that, oh, your book reminds me of a story. And I already knew the man well enough to know that when he starts to tell a story, you let him talk. And yes, it's a long book, but the first story took him 45 minutes. So it kind of makes sense. And it was essentially the story of his years running experiments on prisoners at the Stateville Penitentiary, of which is, is problematic in itself, um, and of meeting a prisoner who was training as a lab tech there and befriending him, recognizing himself in him, and helping him get parole, and all the decisions that went into helping him get parole. And then the man got out, and in a very dramatic and complicated series of events, ended up shooting a police officer in in Stamford, Connecticut. And So he's telling me this story about him, who was 30 years old at the time, and this man who was like him but not, who was 30 years old at the time, and this police officer who was 30 years old at the time. This all happened in 1960. And my thought was they all started at the same starting point line. I I already knew from the story that they were all the children of immigrant parents. They all came for the same reasons. They they came to give these three men a better life. And how did one become the cop, one become the killer, one become my stepfather? And I spent nine years looking into that. And I became the sort of crazy person who all but had the 
the board um, that with the the string on it, you know, the murder board that said this connects to this, which connects to this, which connects yeah. to that. Right, but the red string. Yeah, it's all. It's been something I frankly have always wanted to do, which is get back to the very, 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 very beginning. All the things that have to happen for any given thing to happen, and I could do it with you and me, right? How did we end up? sitting here talking on this podcast at this moment, probably wouldn't be a murder, so wouldn't be as good a title. But it would be a look at how we're shaped by culture, where we're thrown around by world events. Policy is not just at 30,000 feet, it actually has effects on people's lives that change their, their trajectories. And this was a way of looking at all of that. And it's also a true crime murder of the killing of a cop. You're right. Genealogy of a kibitz wouldn't be as compelling. <laughs> the murder makes it compelling. But is this, just, is this on me as a reader? In your introduction, so before the pages get Arabic numbers, <laughs> you tell the story of you're sitting there with your new stepfather who's a nonagenarian and they're eating duck eggs. And he tells a story. And the story involves, and you name some of the elements, it's tantalizing. I read 300 plus pages of the book. I'm enthralled. On the last page, you reveal that your stepfather was the main, one of these main characters, Al Tarlov. Did you explicitly say that on the way in, or did you present it as, he knew of this story, uh, and then it wasn't until the end that you revealed, and this, one of the main characters, was that man eating duck eggs? Yeah, I always start at the end. I mean, so I start at the end with this story too. I start at the end and then I go back to the beginning. But yes, it was because in a way it wasn't important. The man didn't raise me. He didn't shape me. It was not, this is not a first person account of how I came to understand my stepfather. It could have been any three men. It's not unimportant because if you're talking about sort of the the unknown elements and people that create who you are and you don't know about them, my stepfather changed the lives of the cops' children. And until I sent them a, a instant message on Facebook, they didn't know the man existed. So yes, my relationship to him is not unimportant, but I don't know that you need to know it until the epilogue, which is where he and I come up. Do you think the way that you tell a story is often influenced by the way you personally, as the teller, hear about the story? Often, yes. It, it's, it is hard to get away from that right? To you, that's the story is its first telling. This one, this one morphed and grew and and I was far away from the original story by the time I wrote the book. I mean, Leopold and Loeb showed up. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna tell that to my listeners, which is that even though the story of this murder is horrific and world changing, you wouldn't know about it, except there is a murderer prominent within the story of this other murder who is one of the most notorious murderers of the 20th century, plays a big role. And there was this feeling of wherever I turned, there was some bit of history that I, I didn't, it wasn't a stretch. It directly led to 
this murder. Now, only if you look in retrospect, uh, Kierkegaard said life can only be understood backwards, but it has to be lived forwards. So you don't get to know these things until you're past them, until you're at the end looking back. So uh, Leopold and Loeb, yeah, or Nathan Leopold, I'm, I'm going to assume some familiarity with Leopold and Loeb on the part of people who are listening, although I've learned it varies by generations. Um, and the the older you are, the more likely you are to, to know about these two guys. If you say just Leopold and Loeb, then you get about a quarter of the hands, almost everyone over 50. If you say the two University of Chicago brilliant students who murder randomly murdered a young boy to prove they could get away with murder, that they were smart enough to get away with murder, you get a whole lot more hands in in a group. That was Leopold and Loeb. So they go to prison for 99 years to life. And Leopold is bored. So he starts paying attention to who leaves on parole and who comes back and who doesn't. And then he says, okay, why? Why do some people stay out and others don't? Why are some a good risk and others aren't? And he then eventually codifies this. Sociology is a very new uh, science at the time. He publishes in journals under a pseudonym. And he changes the way parole is granted in the state of Illinois. And then my stepfather comes along, interested in parole with this new friend he's made, and he studies Leopold's work. So if not for Nathan Leopold, my stepdad would not have had the confidence that this man met all the criteria. They were Leopold's criteria. So wherever I turned, there was, oh, wait, history is is a living thing that actually has changed us and created us, but we never... We never get to track it until you become, you know, an obsessed writer who spends lots of years doing it. And what brought Al Tarlov to the prison in Illinois where he met Leopold? Al was a doctor and he was in the army. They drafted 60 doctors in 1958. And of the whole country of doctors, Al was one of the 60 doctors who ended up being drafted um, because there was the, the threat from... Um, Russia in in Germany, the Cold War. And he was stationed at the Stateville Penitentiary in Chicago, where the army was running um, drug trials, was running experiments on prisoners. And he was assigned to run those experiments. So that's how he came to Stateville. And it was, you know, the pendulum of punishment versus reform swings back and forth in prisons. And this was a big rehabilitation moment where prisoners got jobs, many jobs, and were trained well to do them. And this one man, Joseph DeSalo, was training in the lab during these drug trials. And Al trained him. Um, and both of them were, you know, on the, the IQ scales that have since been somewhat discredited, but let's go with them, were both geniuses. They were both autodidacts to an extent. They both read extensively. They talked about, you know, literature and science and history. And 
in the confines of the prison where Al didn't have to know this man as an armed robber. He could just know him as the man next to him talking to him about esoteric things. They became friends. Um, Outside of the confines of the prison, Joe DeSalvo didn't do so well. But that was how this friendship began. And Al tried to help, tried to do the right thing. Did you get any fresh um, insight as to it's not exactly a flap of the butterfly's wings, but a lesson to be learned about human development and what we might be missing about what could possibly turn someone into a murderer and someone into an acclaimed scientist. Yeah, I don't have an answer. I did not come out of this book saying, aha, if only X had happened differently in this man's life, then he would have been fine and that we can apply that to all humanity. I wish I did. I actually don't love the conclusion that this particular story leads to. I resist it in a way because this particular man almost didn't have a chance from before he was born. His father was so damaged by his own disappointments and physical accidents. He probably had a traumatic brain injury because he was a motorcycle racer um, and and badly hurt over the years. He had a huge personality change. He he abused his wife and his kids. He they they almost didn't have a shot. And I don't like the message. I I I I push against it in my own life that there was nothing he could have done. He was just a bad egg, and no matter what. There are two, there are other stories that soften that conclusion a bit. Um, There's a young man who happens to turn into, he ends up becoming the brother-in-law of the cop, who in many ways is exactly the same as the murderer, right? Yeah. The cop's own family wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, what wasn't like your stepfather's family, a bunch of uh, striving high achieving doctors. Right. They, um... They were dirt poor. The father drank to excess, beat everyone in sight, and then walked out. Uh, They barely held it together. And this young man, Dante, um, could have gone down the same juvenile delinquency, very in vogue term at the time, road. Um, He went AWOL from the army, as did our eventual killer. He wasn't interested in school, even though he was arguably as brilliant as as the other men. I I ran into four brilliant men in writing this book. Um, But what was different for him was at two or three moments in his life, someone reached in and said, you are worthy. Um, the uh, the school psychologist enrolled him in a program where they paid him to go to school. They gave him an allowance to stay in school because he kept being truant. And that, that had an effect on him. Um, he had a psychology professor when he used the army, you know, the, the GI Bill to go to college, finally, first in his family to do so. And he had a psychology professor who basically said the difference between a child who 
does well and a child who falls apart is somebody who cares cares about him before the age of seven, right? And and he recognized that he was that child. He was the one that they paid to to stay in school. So there are some lessons that that hearten me. And then there's and when the- and to interrupt and when your stepfather Al Tarlov gave a chance to the soon to be murderer Joe DeSalvo he was already a, a grown adult. So the early intervention, he gave him a chance, just like this other guy got a chance, but it wasn't when he was seven. It was after he his life course had perhaps been set. And yet, there's also an interesting message there, because I spent a lot of time exploring, okay, what is the role of a prison? And, and is it their job to fix people? And how do they decide who to let out and whether or not they've changed? And Joe and Al became close, and Al didn't just say, here's a letter saying you did a good job, parole board, you know, let him out. He found Joe a job. He found him a place to live. He got him out of Chicago, um, which was, you know, kind of out of the water you swim in. And, and all of those things were things that Leopold recognized as some of the th- things that would help someone stay out. They had work that they were trained to do and a place where they were being paid to do it. They had a place to live. So he he worked to make it okay. I think what happened is that Joe had scaffolding while in prison. He had rules. He he knew his role. He there were expectations. People kept him, held him to those expectations. He got out, and while he'd been trained to be a lab tech, he really nobody had ever taught him to live in the real world. He had failed twice already, and and the thing my stepfather blames himself for is that Al uh, Joe actually reached out to my stepfather, saying, "I need help." you know, can I see you? And it was at a, a really complicated moment in my stepfather's life. And he said, you know, not now, maybe next week. And that was when Joe went and bought a gun. So Al became that person to an extent. Uh, The prison system experiments with programs that provide that scaffolding to people who are newly released, but they're never well-funded and they're not consistent across the country. But those are the takeaways. And they're not all warm and fuzzy, right? They're they're not, oh, well, if everybody is really good inside. And if you just recognize that goodness, it's much more complicated. Yeah, than well, that. But it's- forget about not even warm and fuzzy. They're not all clear because it's not warm and fuzzy to say, hey, if you let someone out of jail and they're destitute, they're going to be desperate and maybe will cause crime and violence. All right, I understand that. This wasn't the case. This was a guy who got a trade who, as you write in the book quite poignantly, earned enough to own a car, and it was the first car he had ever driven that he hadn't stolen. So things economically could have been working out. That's not the whole picture. It, the picture is much more complicated. Oh, it, the, if there is a moral to this story, it's it's complicated. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I don't like stories that aren't complicated. So this one was perfect for me. Lisa Belkin is a veteran New York Times reporter where she's covered national issues, medicine. She is the author of Show Me a Hero and now Genealogy of a Murder, Four Generations, Three Families, One Fateful Night. Lisa Belkin, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And for more 
of this Lisa Belkin conversation, a very deserved extra dollop of Lisa Belkin, a book that was grand and daring and I think worked really well and did something a nonfiction book uh, hasn't done before that I know of. I'm going to give you more of that interview if you're a Pesca Plus subscriber. In fact, it's not just Belkin. This week, usually one interview a week, we expand out and we put in the Pesca Plus feed. I'm going to do that to at, for at least three interviews. So I'm really giving you dollops and dollops of Pesca Plus. If you are a subscriber to the Pesca Plus feed, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. We also have an ad-free version. The Pesca Plus feed is also an ad-free version. That is at subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to support the show and to listen to even more of the most interesting interviews. And now the spiel. Warner Brothers Discovery brought in Chris Licht at CNN to be something of a rainmaker. So far, the most precipitation he's caused was ratings falling from the sky. Rain, as an analogy, is at the heart of Licht's mission. He uses it four times, I think, in a monumental piece of journalism in The Atlantic, written by Tim Alberta. Here's Licht trying the rain analogy in an interview he conducted with Kara Swisher when he took the CNN job. Some people like rain, some people don't like rain, but we're not going to have somebody on who says it's not raining. Yeah, that's good, right? That's why he says it over and over and over and over again in the Atlantic piece titled Inside the Meltdown at CNN. I hope they don't start calling Lick the Rain Man, but it's clear they are calling him some awful things inside the building. They don't like his tone, his tenor, where his office is, his dismissal of the boss he replaced, his new ideas for programming, the drop in ratings, and basically everything that's happened to the network's brand since he was placed at the helm. And why should they? Things aren't ambiguous. This is a story, the one in the Atlantic, that has the hallmarks of a pre-obit, a professional obit, looks pretty healthy, works out with a trainer. The trainer watches Rachel Maddow, by the way. The subhead is CEO Chris Licht felt he was on a mission to restore the network's reputation for serious journalism. How did it all go wrong? Tim Alberta offers some excellent insight. One, whenever you think of the strategy of repositioning CNN as less ideological, less reactive, and more measured, you have to have some tactics to bring to fruition the strategy. Like me, Alberta is on board with the idea of a pivot away from hysteria, but how do you execute it? Here's where Alberta is devastating. There seems to be no plan besides lots of rain analogies. The tinkering with the morning show was an explosion. The emptiness around 9 p.m. was an implosion. And the CNN town hall with Donald Trump, well, it would be an insult to the chastity of clusters to fully document the extent to which it was fucked. But make no mistakes, friends. The CNN town hall with Donald Trump was fucked. From the jump, as they say, even Fox, Fox News, which had a town hall with Trump on primetime last week, knew not to let the man have free reign. Here was Sean Hannity bragging about how he's better than CNN. By the way, unlike fake news CNN, it's not my job to sit here and debate the candidate. 
We're going to ask him about the issues of the day. And not to air it live so we could edit out all the nonsense about a stolen election. And that is what they did. Fox got sued by Dominion, so they knew not to allow Trump unfettered access to the microphone, or as he calls it, the lie stick. Even that bit of journalistic sense, plus the dollars, the $787 million, was enough to elevate an otherwise ridiculous hour of programming on Fox News. The first question Hannity asked Trump was about Joe Biden falling at the Air Force Academy, which led to really an important reverie about the time Trump almost fell, but engaged in what turned out to be a personal storming of the beaches at Normandy. Remember the media made so much? You, I think you were at West Point at the time. Yeah. And you were coming down a ramp. Yeah. It didn't have a rail. You had dress shoes on like you have now, yeah. which have very slippery it's soles. Correct. They look a little better, but you better not uh, walk in rain. That's true. <laughs> yes, especially downhill on a ramp. Um, you know, it was very interesting. I think I made my best speech. And that was my best speech. And I was so proud of it. It was pouring. It was pouring. Wow. The bravery, the podiatric dexterity. He's like the Lionel Messi of ramps. But did Fox take a shellacking in the media? They did not. Did The Atlantic write an article about how bad Fox's town hall was? It did not. Because everyone expects Fox and Hannity to supplicate themselves at the feet of the Balanchine of sloped academy stages. Likewise, did the media bray and caterwaul when CNN did other town halls with other Republicans? The media did not. It's not as if other Republicans use their time to raise the level of discourse beyond embellishment and some reality shifting. Here was Nikki Haley last night. I'm not pro-life because the Republican Party tells me to be. I'm pro-life because my husband was adopted. I'm pro-life because I had trouble having both of my children. So I am surrounded by blessings. Having said that, I don't judge anyone for being pro-choice any more than I want them to judge me for being pro-life. If you look at the situation of the life abortion story that we have today, how did we get to where we are? The life abortion question. No, the question is abortion. That is the issue. The spin is life. It's like calling the conflict in Europe going on right now the not in America's interest war in Ukraine. At least she didn't refer to myocarditis vaccine distribution. But no wailing about Nikki Haley. In fact, barely any notice. Chris Licht's entire theory of the case was to not be driven mad by Trump. Then he put Trump and so many Trump backers on the stage, and they drove everyone mad. CNN itself was chief among the decriers. No one caterwauled as loudly. Although throughout the politically opinionated world, CNN's town hall was seen as a sign of such spectacular cataclysm that it could not be ducked, it could not be dodged, the damage could not be avoided like a nimble sectogenarian in plain-toed Oxfords gingerly dancing around harm. Of course, the right wants CNN to fail. The left wants any network that gives Trump a town hall to fail. Even the gist, which advocated for giving the president a town hall forum, rated what we all saw as a fail. And Tim Alberta has turned it into an epic. As he wrote, quote, Republicans were angry at CNN. Democrats were angry at CNN. Journalists were angry at CNN. The only one who wasn't angry, it seemed, was Trump, most likely because he'd succeeded in disgracing the network on its own airwaves. I strongly encourage you to read the piece. It is so well done. I feel like I got to really know this character of Chris Licht, who might be ever so slightly different from the actual person of Chris Licht. The real guy was a guy I interviewed a few years ago and hung around with for a day. 
for a piece I did on his tenure as executive producer of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. He turned that show around. During our time together, he was insightful and impressive. This licked isn't. I don't know if it's this licked of 2023 or this licked in this job or this licked as depicted in this job. He is none of those things. That licked clearly encouraged Colbert to follow his gut politically and remember or just watch Colbert within the last few years, you know that the gut was very much on the progressive side of things, which was the right analysis for that show. Now at CNN, Licht is accused of being a closet right winger, but did you watch Colbert? This Licht has a very hard task, made a bit harder by a very good profile. To quote the piece, Lick shrugged it all off. The internal leaks, the external media swarm, the printed columns and whispered anecdotes accusing him of remaking CNN into Fox News light. Quote, this is too important for me to be worried about what someone's calling me or suggested I'm trying to be, Licht said. This is so mission-driven and so important. I genuinely am. I get mad. I get frustrated. But it doesn't, like, affect me. Does that make sense? It didn't make sense. End quote. Also, I should note, it's just a journalistic chef kiss when Alberta exposes the David Zaslov, who is the head of Discovery, when he exposes him as cowardly ducking an interview. It is rare for a journalist to put those kind of details in because it embarrasses a source who could be very valuable, probably burns the source for all future time, but Alberta did it and it made for a very compelling read. I actually hope Lick succeeds in restoring some journalistic shine to the CNN brand, but now I think he's got to worry about polishing his own image a little bit first. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca, CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. And thanks for listening.